this, 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 this away. Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now, the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. I know I don't really, we don't do a lot of stuff consistently, but when I do come on, I like to bring on the best and the brightest and then those that are bringing ideas uh, to the forefront. As some of you know, uh, that listen to the, you know, my podcast, C.S. Lewis is near and dear to my heart. Um, He was the first person that really introduced me into the apologetic world. I can remember uh, being a junior in high school and picking up uh, C.S. Lewis and God on the Dock and other essays and The Problem of Pain, two books I took off the shelf of my dad's um, bookcase and I read my junior year between taking my PSAT. I had a little time and my world was absolutely changed. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, I was a Christian before, but he enlightened me and things and really started me on a journey of of reading Chesterton and and other great you know literature from Christians who were not exactly theologians, but boy, they had something to bring to the table that really started me on the process of becoming a well-rounded Christian. And when I saw, and I listen, Amazon, you can say what you want about it, but its algorithm knows me so well. Uh, it it popped up in the recommendations one day a book from a Jason Baxter who I at the time had not heard from before, but it was called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And I have a I have a professor that's near and dear to me that actually went to Wheaton, spent a lot of time on Lewis, and I sent the book to him and I said, "Listen, I don't know, I've just seen the title of this book. Let's read this book together." And we did. Um, you know, Dr. Dorset is his name, and you know, he was intrigued by the title. So I reached out to Dr. Baxter and I said, "Hey, not only do I haven't even read the book yet, just love the title." It's a fascinating book too. the The actual look of the book is fat is great, but I said I reached out to him and said, "About to read this book, I want you in Birmingham." But we'll talk about that a little later. But now I have the opportunity of bringing Dr. Baxter, Jason Baxter, uh, to our podcast to talk about the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, how great books shaped a great mind. It's IVB Press. And Dr. Baxter, thank you for coming on. You To start off, tell me where you're teaching right now. Tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks so much. This is, this is such a treat and really grateful. Um, I was at Wyoming Catholic College for 12 years. Um, at a kind of integrated great books program. Um, Before that, I was at Notre Dame doing my PhD in medieval literature and Dante. And before that, I was at University of Dallas um, studying the great books. So I've been, you know, neck deep in the great books for a long time. Uh, So the subtitle of this thing makes sense uh, of the the new book, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. Um, And then just this summer, I moved to uh, back to South Bend, Indiana, where I am uh, associated with Notre Dame, and I'm helping some friends design a curriculum for a classical academy uh, called St. Thomas More Academy, where my kids go. And yeah, it's been it's been a a wild summer. We we moved uh, across country. We had a baby, started a new job. uh, But now now at Notre Dame, um, teaching currently in the great books program, as you might expect, 
at uh, at Notre Dame. So doing everything from from Tolstoy to to Tocqueville to Frederick Douglass to to Moby Dick, uh, but also um, but what I what I really do as a scholar and as a writer is kind of um, all things medieval. But I think particularly the the relevance and the urgency of things medieval. And that's why I was so privileged to write this particular book, because it takes an author that we all love, as you said, an author that so many of us were sort of you know nourished by as as even as teenagers. I think a lot of us, probably a lot of your listeners, could you know trace their own intellectual awakenings to encountering c s. lewis as as young folk. And so it kind of helps me put my own personal love for C.S. Lewis and admiration for him in contact with my scholarly pursuits and studies of the medieval world. Because we'll start right there. I mean, I think I knew everything there was about Lewis, but I never really put a lot of thought into what informed Lewis's thought. And if, you know, not to give too much about your book, because I want people to get it and read it. I mean, you pretty much kind of make a uh, an argument that Lewis w- had formed his mind where he was the last, almost the last great medieval. He was like a medieval mind within modern culture. Uh, is that a correct way to say it? Yeah, I love it. I mean, you and I, before the show, we're talking about expats. Um, C.S. Lewis was an expat in time. He was a chronological expat in which he didn't, he, he didn't leave his, his home country. He was actually, you know, fairly provincial. Well, I guess, I guess he did. Never mind. What am I saying? I mean, he didn't leave the United Kingdom, right? He's, you know, he's 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 Irish and then in, in English, but lives in this kind of geographical region for most of his adult life. But he was an expat in terms of time. Right. In which he, as he's jokingly puts it in his Cambridge address in 1954, which has the fancy Latin title of De Descriptione Temporum, he had become more or less a naturalized citizen of the Middle Ages. And those sentiments which are so hard for us to understand as as uh as I sometimes jokingly you you know say it as iPhone wielding technology obsessed moderns um Lewis had sort of got on the other side of that and had begun to understand what it felt like to breathe medieval air and had actually begun to prefer it so that he was more like Boethius than than us at least that's how he might put it to us so do you do you think your book is a book about uh, the great books that shaped him, or is it about the positives that come with the medieval kind of framework of looking at the cosmos, or is it a, a little bit of both? Yeah, that's a cool question. Um, I, I've read an Alan Jacobs' uh, really excellent biography that Lewis's sort of special talent was, you know, sort of acknowledged as a lecturer that he could make people feel a sense of urgency of the old things. Um, and, and I always put it this way to my students. I feel like it's faithful to C.S. Lewis that your goal is at, when you're in a dialogue, um, you know, whatever type of dialogue, whatever type of argument is not necessarily to persuade your interlocutor. It's to make your interlocutor, even if your interlocutor walks away without being convinced, your goal is to make your interlocutor sad that what you say is not true. By which I sort of, as a shorthand gesture, I just want to say, that all of our goal, our goal is to make people understand why why what is believed has a sense of urgency or a sense of you know a sense of persuasive power. So I think obviously in our contemporary culture, you know, medieval thinks sort of you know pulp fiction, right? You know, to go medieval on someone, right, it just means superstitious. It means cruelty. It means you know it means stupidity. So, but Lewis, of course knew that these were just foolish stereotypes, stories that in our post-Enlightenment world, right, 
you know, that we like to tell ourselves, you know, since Diderot and the French Enlightenment, that we like to tell ourselves and in part to sort of build ourselves up of how stupid our ancestors were, how awesome we are. But when we do that, you know, when we, we also, we refuse to look at our own blind spots. So yeah, I think this book is, this book is a, is a couple of things. It's, it's kind of, you know, using Lewis and using some of the books that he knew and loved the best to make a persuasive case that our ancestors' view of the world was not superstitious or idiotic, but it was actually quite compelling and quite beautiful. And, you know, and so I don't think, you know, I'm not trying to convert anyone to, you know, to, to go pre-modern. But it seems that if the book is successful, it makes people have a sense of nostalgia and at least reverence and respect that our ancestors weren't stupid. But then for a lot of people, you know, I think it 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 it, it triggers a dialogue in which we think, hmm, they actually had they actually had some spiritual powers, some some spiritual virtues. Uh, you know, they had they had some things in their worldview, which I think we need to recover. And then all of a sudden, this very interesting, very difficult dialogue of what can you retain as a as as a modern? I and mean, I think there are some real virtues that we have, and I wouldn't want to jettison. What can you retain as a modern while also while also recovering some things that we've even forgotten that we've lost? I think that's when that dialogue can begin. Like significant things we've lost, right? I mean, I'm I was taken back by your book, and I've read this in other places before, but you you put it down pretty beautifully. It's this idea of just even the cosmos, the way it's developed. Um, I'm listening to a book we had mentioned before the podcast um, where um, he talks about Kepler and how Kepler, at, at, you know, in the late, it's like 1598, he started realizing that the universe wasn't wasn't quite as he grew up understanding it that there wasn't some the the planets didn't have spirits and you know they didn't move together in harmony and gears you know you know you know where one is affecting the other you know and he started becoming more of a modern mind taking on a kind of copernicus kind of idea of a modern mind uh one of the things in the book that he said was is that he started changing his vocabulary from from spirits to forces so start start even his vocabulary was taken on a modern approach of of yeah. gravity and I love forces that. Yeah. and right. stuff like that and 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 listen we see what the power of the intellectual kind of movement of 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 taking on this rationale of the modern age um but we've lost something and and you know what we've lost is kind of thinking about the cosmos in the sense of it is created by god and then there's a sense of beauty and order uh, I like thinking about the planets talking and singing to each other. Like I think yeah. there's a benefit to that, right? Is that what yeah. you mean by loss? Is what I guess what I'm asking is it, thinking yeah. of the planets yeah. as beautiful as singing. Right. Yeah, yeah. What a what an amazing set of kind of nesting questions. I think. What have we lost? Uh, I think we've lost a lot. We've lost like you know particular doctrines, particular beliefs. But I think maybe we could put it, you know, boil it down to two things. One, we've lost a sense of integration. Um, just think about our sort of modern universities, right? If you want to study what the world's like, you either go to biology or you go to physics. If you want to study in some sense, you know, the, the human heart's response to beautiful things, you either go to, you know, a literature program or maybe you go to music. If you want to answer questions about, uh, you know, um, ethics, 
ethics. You go to philosophy or business ethics, right? But we're so fragmented. I think that part of the attraction of the medieval world is that those the, the sort of phenomenon of beauty and the phenomenon of goodness and the phenomenon of truth and now what we would call science were all interwoven such that your experience of the natural world felt not only in some sense, you know, scientifically uh, accurate, but also demanded an ethical and an aesthetic response. That is what you saw was also an experience of beauty. Think surprised by joy, right? Lewis keeps talking about the natural world and this deep, this deep sense of, of what he calls joy. But as we all know, he has a very technical understanding of that. It's very, it's a sort of a deep sense of beauty. But in that sense of beauty, I also find my 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 very moral life being transformed. So there's an ethical sense as well. That's, that's one of those sort of micro moments where I suggest that Lewis is still medieval or had become medieval and that he's sort of integrating all of these experiences, which we separate in our modern and our modern uh, academy into different departments. So I think that's one sense. I think the other sense is. Um, I, and I call it variously, and so does C.S. Lewis, but you were hinting at it um, with respect to uh, the scientific revolution. You could call it that our, we, we have, we see the world after the mechanization of the world picture, the mechanization of the world picture. That is, our basic sort of vocabulary is one which could apply to machine engineering of things we believe in forces we believe in parts it, for us you could say you might put it like this we don't believe there's anything between the atoms there are atoms and even descartes some of his illustrations even show this and they have little hooks and they hook onto each other so for us it's all primitive elements and mechanistic interactions that's our world picture now increasingly we even try to fit my human relationships my sense of the human soul into these pictures and i think you know as as our sort of technological devices take up more and more of our time it makes that type of picture more and more lived picture more and more persuasive persuasive to us our medieval ancestors believe in what you could call a participatory cosmos or lewis calls it a symbolic cosmos you mm. might want to call it an iconic cosmos and and inevitably i just think that the single best way to get at this, if you're interested in looking at Lewis, is read his little sermon, Transposition, which I bet a lot of your readers already have. I think Transposition and Weight of Glory are kind of perfect um, companion pieces to, to read together. But in Transposition, Lewis has this wonderful little thought experiment in which he says, imagine if you went to a really good symphony before the age of mechanical reproduction of music, and you love this symphony. And we'll say, I, I had the wonderful chance once upon a time uh, to hear Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was actually 2020. It was before, it was before we knew that COVID was among us. I was sitting in Vienna on 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 uh, January 1st, listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and no one no one loves their Beethoven more than the Viennese. Imagine you have that type of experience and you just you just fall in love with this music and you you crave it. You want to hear it again. You want it to become a part of you. But you can't just, you know, pop on your Idagio or your or your CDs and listen to it. What do you do? You get it transposed, transliterated for a piano piece for two or four hands. And you invite your best buddy over, you know, your best uh, Birmingham buddy over to come over and you sit down and you play that you play this piece together. 
Now, so you both of you have heard the symphony. So sometimes you know that your G is meant to be a violin. And sometimes you know that your G is meant to be a flute. If you've heard the symphony, playing it on the piano can evoke those sort of deep memories of what happened before, even though you have a lower level language trying to capture a higher level language. Well, Lewis said that that's how our medieval ancestors felt about the very physical cosmos. As I put it in my book, for our medieval ancestors, physics was a subset of theology. Now, the way they put it was in this very beautiful, very mysterious way. Time is the imitation of eternity. Time is the imitation of eternity. As if the physical world tries to be as much like its maker as it can mm. in its own kind of natural operations. But its own natural operations are nothing but a yearning and a longing and a groaning to try to express something which it can't express because it has a lower level language of space and time. But what it wants to do is show forth eternity. And thus the natural world is both an icon and a failure simultaneously. <laughs> but what it means is, is that an experience of beauty for our medieval ancestors is not just my emotions, right? It's not just me thinking, oh, how pretty that sunset is. What it is, it's me listening in on the voice of eternity, trying to express itself in whispers, which this world can barely express. Hmm. So we can kind of go full circle now. In other words, my very scientific encounter with the world evokes both an aesthetic and the response of beauty and an ethical response. Or as our medieval ancestors put it, an anagogical response in which my heart is pulled up. My heart has a sense of longing. My heart wants to see through this world as if this world were itself a stained glass window, trying to see what was on the other side of that. According to C.S. Lewis, that's what it felt like to do science. And that's, as I kind of jokingly say it sometimes, for our medieval ancestors, a Gothic cathedral was the closest thing to a particle accelerator that, that he could get, right? I mean, we could go in what I mean by that. But in some sense, a Gothic cathedral for them was science. It was an attempt to evoke, to represent the eternity, which was just on the other side of time-space. Hmm. And that's what I think when, yeah, when we experience nostalgia, sentimental, kind of a sentimental longing for our medieval, for our medieval's cosmos, that's what it is. Because for them, without, I think without being pantheist, without conflating God with the physical world, they also felt God to be very close and very present in this physical world. Whereas we're all a bunch of, uh, you know, we're all a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of deists, even if we don't want to be sort of by default that God is very far away. And he might, you know, he might speak to me in my heart, but I don't feel him, I don't feel him close and holy and present like our medieval ancestors did. I think without making the pantheist mistake. That's what Lewis says it is to be a, a naturalized citizen of the medieval world, to be an expat from modernity. So disintegrated. I mean, when you come on the when the phrase deeper magic, you know, I used to always love that phrase, you know, the, right. the idea of seeing the world and the deeper magic yeah. disintegrated really kind of, for me, it's what's I'm catching up from you and really where my mind's going. And it's kind of scattered at the moment of we could go in five or six different places and this is, yeah, okay. you know, we don't have the time, but um, even, even the movement lately I, you know I, I try to listen and read as much as i can across the board believers and non-believers you know there's a big movement now for 
um, hallucinogenic drugs. I uh, watched a Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan talks about it all the time on his podcast. To me, really when you're talking, thing, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for me, it may be, you know, they talk about the positiveness of, 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 yeah. of seeing the other world. For me, listening to you, my mind's brought back to, to people that are yeah. desperately trying to integrate themselves back into a yes. holistic cosmos. Like yes. the, so Joe Rogan talks about the veil being lifted and seeing what he thinks in the Bible you see as angels. What I would say is, well, you're 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 saying deist, but we're trying to compartmentalize even God in a certain place in our head. And he won't do that. Right. I mean, he forces yeah. against that. And but really, there's a longing to be uberly connected to the universe. Right. Yeah. That That's the word that, you know, yeah. that's how we're made. We want to be with God. And, yeah, that's uh, right. I- I mean, I, I've actually been in conversations with people I really admire and about your your listeners. I'll, I'll be out of charity for for these folks. I won't mention their sure. names, but listen, people, your your listeners probably know and read in which this hallucinogenic drug stuff has been like become a big deal. Look, I think I think hallucinogenic drugs are um are the types of spiritual experiences that people who live in a mechanized universe exactly. seek out. Right. I think it's I think it's cheating. <laughs> I think it's trying to find a technology to make you spiritually deep. And the reality is, and maybe this is kind of what you're suggesting at the beginning of the show. Like the reality is that we do live in a natural world and it, it our sort of, you know, the natural longings of the world are pointing to something else. But we really have to go through this natural world. Um, and this is, you know, this is something that I make a, a point in uh, my chapter about Lewis and mysticism, that Lewis is really attracted to these mystical treatises and spends a lot of time reading them. And, you know, they show up in quotes in, in his letters and his sermons. He's got all, it's really everywhere. It's ubiquitous in Lewis's writing. But anytime that someone asks him about it, he's always very pastoral and he's always very, very cautious in which he always jokingly says, today might be Sunday, but tomorrow's a Monday morning. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. I think he means is, look, you gotta, and this is very medieval, right? You've got to work on your natural virtues first before you can hope for these types of these deeper experiences. Now they will begin to break into your life mm. um, as you begin to get your fingers off the throat of creaturely goods, right? You think of sort of Uncle Andrew, who's incapable of feeling the music of the universe because he's thinking about its profit margin, right? He says, you know, what was Columbus to this? This is a, I could make a lot of money here, right? And thus he's he's, he's in the presence of the sort of, you know, the greatest mystical, you know, mystery that he, that one could ever witness, the very creation of the world brought into power by song. But because he himself is so avaricious, because he himself is, 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 is lustful, because he himself is envious and prideful, he can't actually hear the music. So our medieval ancestors, and I really think this is what's behind Lewis's pastoral advice, would be, well, first of all, we've got to, you know, through prayer, through work, but through a sense of asceticism, we've got to get our lust and our avarice and our pride and our envy and our, and, you know, and our, and our gluttony under control. And when we do so, we'll begin to recognize the inner beauty of things but we have to we have to become good at living in this natural world before we get the wonderful consolation and gift of getting those joy moments those as charles mm-hmm. taylor calls it those cracks in the eminent frame right. in which we see a little bit of light seeping through so i think basically i i guess i feel about the whole you know the whole kind of hallucinant drug movement 
is that it's it's the it's the metaphysically poor man's attempt to jump over the very difficult ethical work which our ancestors said was between us and the a type of mystical fulfillment it seems to me analogous i always joke about this to the to the individual uh and her toyota prius uh, who's rushing to, you know, cutting off people and flipping off people in traffic in order to get to her yoga class so she can become spiritually deep, right? No, you got you to gotta, you gotta develop natural virtues, right? In order to get to that spiritual depth. Whereas, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's always a human temptation, but I think it's particularly a temptation for, a, uh, for an iPhone and microwave uh, culture. Just throw the spiritual life in the microwave, 60 seconds you got, what our ancestors thought would take three decades to develop. Oh, wow. You said don't be, you have to be religious before you have to be spiritual, right? <laughs> yeah, just trying to trying to peek some people, right? Just it was such a cliche that like, well, I'm a spiritual person, but not a religious person. Do, do I know, think the, Lewis Lewis would say, and then and he lived this out too, right? He's got some wonderful moments where he's got a funny sense of literalism, right? That's um, right. Where is it in Timothy that the you 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 know? Uh, Matthew, you're you're Protestant. <laughs> that that uh, Paul tells Timothy um, that to that pure religion, righteous religion, is taking care of the orphans and the widows. That's right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Lewis gives away, if I'm not mistaken, all of his royalties for his spiritual books. Didn't keep didn't keep that money, but gave it away, and through his his dear friend, the attorney Owen Barfield, and set up you know a secret charitable foundation for orphans and widows. He's very right. literal about some of this stuff, right? And he goes to chapel every single day, right? You know, seven times a day will my mouth praise you, says the psalmist. So Lewis goes to goes to chapel um, and sits there with these people that he doesn't particularly like or admire, as he talks about in screw tape letters, right? But in some sense, yeah, that was Lewis being religious and hoping that the consolation of being spiritual would erupt even in the midst of my ordinary church, <laughs> that, that, even that, in the that, midst that, of my ordinary neighbors, uh, as unlikely as that might sound. You got to put in the work. I mean, me and you have talked about, you know, being kind of movie buffs. Um, when here's another weird aside, it, w- one of the first movies that really brought that to my attention as I was, um, many, many moons ago was dead poet society. And what people don't realize about that movie is the only reason those students were prepped for, uh, uh, the professor that comes in is because they had put all the work in before, like all the, the dirty work, you know, they yeah, had like all that. these, yeah. I mean, but that's very, yeah. that's very, my kids are in classical school. So that's a very classical yeah. school kind of thing. You can only yeah. be in the rhetoric part of maturation and learning when you put all the rote hard work in before. Right. So I, I think that's really I think that's a smart insight to one that, you know, I think even the, the the makers of the film themselves probably, you know, couldn't have recognized. You're right. You know, Robin Williams's character can't inspire anyone if they don't have as you 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 seem to be thinking about Dorothy Sayers lost tools of learning here. If they haven't already gone through the this the stage of grammar, that is, if they haven't already got, you know, literally a vocabulary, but a sort of basic vocabulary of reality. And then their magical teacher can come in and say, yeah. let me show how to put this all together. And yeah, you let say, me show you something real. That's what yeah, it was. Me, right? Yeah, exactly. Real is not 
maybe that's not the way to put it, but it, it speaks to what you're saying even in this book that because Lewis was taking on the the mindset of you know the medieval age, he was able to take all because I know enough about Lewis's history that I mean his early history it was very disciplined you know and some of his tutors and and people they it was incredibly disciplined and he was an yeah. atheist through that because of personal experiences but when right. he when it was only because later in life he had gone through that yeah. that he was able to to write the things that he wrote and be able to express and understand and enjoy deeper magic you know, and to say things that to the regular person would probably be like, well, what are you talking about? But I mean, one of the pictures is when Lewis is like, listen, I could I can give you a map of the, of the cliffs yeah. of Dover, but that's not the experience of seeing them. Right. Those are two yeah. totally right. different things. Yeah, and that's right. what th this is flowing throughout your entire book is this acknowledgement. Yeah. And we could do this. I, I, I just I, this is the kind of book and the, and the things that you're speaking about are the kind of things I think that the church needs and the church needs to realize not not only Christians need to read it, but I think uh, they will be uplifted and, and hopefully it will put them on a path of thinking about these things that will integrate their life with Christ together. But I mean, I think this is a great book for those who are just casual unbelievers who probably enjoy Lewis, you know, probably are seekers. I mean, put this book in their hands because I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really good, Doctor Baxter, and I think it's, it's, it's worth uh, people chewing on it and reading it and buying it. I do have one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and then we'll get to my, the fun part, which is, you know, we're actually bringing you to Alabama, and I'm so happy about that. That we I'm excited too. Yeah, we can spend some time together. I'm um, kind of glad that my team's not doing so well this year. They'll just sort of take all those fears and you know inferiority complex from being in Alabama away from me. Well, just we didn't make about Lewis. This year, our football team, so it's it's uh, <laughs> everyone's yeah. depressed about football. Notre Dame <laughs> yeah, and right. Alabama, we can just unite together and talk about but, Lewis. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly in our woe. And uh, so, yeah, so. I've been involved in apologetics for the last 20 years. When I did my doctoral work, I did it in the area of character and virtue, the virtue tradition. Uh, what I caught up in the medieval mindset that I think is really kind of fascinating, and in the, even the ancient world and the Jewish world, is the idea of humility and virtue and character bef before you take on the life of the mind, right? That being somebody is just yeah. as important as thinking about things. Right. In order to think yep. about things, you have to be a certain kind of person. So, you know, you, you think about the first part of Proverbs. Well, you don't get the latter half of Proverbs until you go through this really weird part of the first part of Proverbs that says things like, you know, it has this personified wisdom as a woman. And you have these these statements like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge and understanding. Yeah. I mean, when you said in the book about so we can talk about that as you know some other time and place but you made a very i guess a little mention of the fact that the highest virtue is not being nice the highest virtue is holiness and and i was caught by that you know because to me i thought oh you know if i'm trying to direct my character in a way that really forms my mind to be christ-like well, yeah. in a world where i live in where they're constantly saying the highest virtue is being nice and tolerant Right. You actually make a point of saying, no, 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 no. It might actually be something scarier. Holiness. Yes. Can you go into that for just a minute? Yes. Well, I think, I, I think, you know, it's, we just think of, remember how Mr. Beaver even describes uh, Aslan, right? Mm -hmm. um, Susan says, a lion. I should be afraid of a lion. It's, Beaver responds, no, he's not tame. 
but he's good. Mm. I think I, I I think that might be a, you know a single phrase of sort of expressing holiness, untamed goodness, and I think ultimately is being nice, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but well, I mean, what's more important than good is I mean, being nice is is loving people, um, and but loving with a kind of uh, loving with a kind of radical love. As opposed to just like, I feel like niceness is is this is this sort of like ultimately negative virtue. It's me not saying things that you don't want to hear, right? Whereas love is something more challenging. Love is something that was more difficult because it's this desire to commune with, ultimately with God, and and then, and then secondarily with my neighbor, right? I don't want to just be nice to my neighbor, but to the extent I can, I want to love my neighbor. Now there are all kinds of you know natural limitations with how far that can go. Oh, and, you know, relationships are kind of like an onion, right? You sort of, you peel back the layers to the extent that your friend will allow that, right? And, you know, depending on the different relationships, you get closer to that core and that's completely natural. But yeah, no, I think that, I think that sense of holiness, right? The sense of seeing God and being, and uh, in like in, in a mode of Isaiah 6, being stupefied by what we find. I'm just going to translate holy, holy, holy into something mm. like, Lord, th this shouldn't be. <laughs> you ought not to be like this. It's just too much. You're too good. You're too glorious. You're too beautiful. You're too much. How, how do I even begin? And hence, that's kind of my own kind of, you know, <laughs> homespun reading of why these, you know, incredible winged creatures with all their eyes and wings just have to repeat themselves over and over again as if they're admitting by their repetition their failure in, in, in doing justice to the vision which they perceive. No, man. Look, if that's what if that's what the heart of Christianity is, then your ethics flow out of that. Mm. Right? But then but then your your goodness, your ethics, your Christian life, your courage looks different. Your love looks different. Your sort of like, you know, ability to your ability to tolerate um inconvenience and and frustrations and and insults provided that you have so i think i think a lot of times i think we christians try to reverse engineer character that yeah, is we ask right. ourselves what the positive effects we want and then we try to hype ourselves up through enthusiasm to possess you know those series of peripheral goods which are real goods but but i think i think lewis is genius and this is why we all love weight of glory so much um, and, you know, I think maybe what I'm trying to develop in the book is the special insight is that Lewis's weight of glory is kind of a modernized, vernacularized, translated understanding of, uh, of a medieval understanding in which the vision of God's ineffable goodness, in which I find myself in my heart saying, holy, 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 is the well, the bubbling well out of which my peripheral virtues of my character will flow out of, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm probably going to be nice to you, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm probably going to, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, you know? And the, and the grocery line, I'll let you go ahead of me, right? Especially if you have a little kid who's acting up in the store. But the mm -hmm. reason I do that will be different. Wow. It'll be sort of flowing out of this vision, right? The reason that I'm going to work so hard to to love people of different races and of different creeds is because I love the Lord Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. That you know the the visible manifestation of the holy, uh, of of holiness Himself. And now yeah. I'm going to go love my brothers and sisters of different colors, but yeah. I'm not going to be reverse engineering it. 
But in some sense, you know, and the, the medievals write about this, in some sense, in my own little heart will be the overflowing love of the Trinity. And as that bubbles out, hopefully it'll bubble out into my character, into my daily life. And my conversation as Paul will indeed be different. But it's because it will, because my very actions within time will have roots in eternity. Goodness gracious! So we can almost we can almost have the best of both worlds in Jesus. We can see the all the mechanisms of the cosmos, and we're made in His image to manipulate those things. But then we can also see the magic of the cosmos. Uh, so we can sing with the medievals and still be a rational modernist. Uh, yeah. and, you know, by seeing yeah. wonder. Right. Yeah, I like that. I, I, yeah, I, I, I like think, that. I think. I think. Yeah, you said the good of Jesus, the the mystery of Jesus is the sort of you know aspect of, of incarnation, and right. I, um, you know, without being, <laughs> without being her heretical here, to some extent, the the privilege of the Christian is repeating the act of the incarnation to the mm -hmm. extent that I can. Right, the Word becomes flesh. Right, um, the the vision of our Lord. Right, the vision of the Logos to a certain extent, becomes flesh in my life, in my time, in my decisions, in my work, in my job, in my house, in my family, in my friendships, to the extent that I can. And I think the gorgeous thing is that, is that it's going to be unique to me. It's going to be particularized to my individual age. Mm -hmm. And so look, if we could really do this thing well, we could have a, you know, we don't have to lament being born out of time, being, you know, <laughs> being untimely born. We could, our holiness, if we do it well, is going to be uniquely particular to our own age. We could really bring something into the world that's never been seen before. And it's something even our ancestors could wonder at. Like, how did you guys do that? Right. Just loved a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chesterton said the difference between the poet and the, and the mathematician is that the poet tries to get his head into heaven while the mathematician tries to get the heavens into his head. <laughs> right. And I always loved yeah. that quote. But what I'm thinking is you can be both. And that, that's what I want to invite our church to be. I mean, God's church is filled with so many different people and skills right. and have so much to give. And you're one of them. And uh, we are happy to have you in February. So on February 3rd, you're coming to Sanford University. Uh, you're going to be speaking to a class, uh, and it's going to be open to the public, but it's going to be part of the Great Book Series. Uh, more of that information will be on tacticalfaith.com. Uh, I, I just want to leave by saying thank you, Dr. Baxter. We, we pray for you and your family. We pray for your work. Uh, you're doing mighty and great things, uh, but we want to pray a, a, a hedge of protection around you. Uh, and I just want to support you. When I, when I read good stuff, I want to bring good stuff to my state. And thank God for working through you and, and, and giving you the curiosity and the wonder and, and the mind to use for his kingdom. Well, thank you so much. Thank God for Alabama. Um, and uh, I'm so excited to visit in February, not in August. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's not as it's not as cold down here as it is in South Bend. Yeah, I uh, bet your your weather's gonna gonna be better. I'll get a yeah, little. it's not it's not exactly. Temporary promotion. I'm really excited. I'm already working on my talk. Can't wait to meet everyone in the flesh. 